I'm JP Pomari, author of The Last Guess, and you are listening to The Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction there, JP Pomari, to today's episode. Hello, everyone out there. It is I, your host, Samuel Elliott. You are listening to The Right Way Podcast program, and the person whom you just heard from then is none other than JP Pomari. Uh, JP Pomari talked to me today about his latest novel, The Last Guests. Uh, for those of you not yet in the know, JP's, this is the second time JP's been on the program. Uh, he was also on the program earlier this year, January 17, uh, is what Spotify tells me. It seems like a lifetime ago, because obviously things are a little bit less dismal with uh, lockdown and stuff. But uh, anyway, I digress. So JP joined me today to discuss his latest book, The Last Guests, which uh, is kind of a, a, a new sort of uh, technologically up-to-date sort of take on uh, the likes of Hitchcock's Rear Window. But uh, this kind of notion that's kind of our seminal really, which is that we are all voyeurs and the increase or the advancement of technology is just sort of uh, not so much enabled or aided in this process or this addiction, but kind of uh, catered to it and ensured that it's something that is always going to be around and not going anywhere. So I wanted to give you a little bit of an intro there. Uh, so thanks heaps to JP Pomari for giving the intro as well. And thank you all to listen, for listening to this particular episode. So please everyone give a big digital round of applause to writer, crime writer JP Pomari, second time on the program discussing with me his latest novel, The Last Guests. JP Pomari, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program, man. How are you going today? Good, good. We're all in lockdown. Um, oh, yeah. Other than that, yeah, fine. <laughs> you're in uh, ye old Melbourne, yes. This is your, uh, you're no, uh, this isn't your first time to the rodeo. You're like on your sixth lockdown, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, it's this one's not so bad. I think because I'm writing, I've, I've got a deadline, so um, I wouldn't be doing anything anyway. Um, so yeah, it could be worse. I know lots of people got a lot worse than, than I do as well. We're, we're okay. We can manage it. Um, yeah, but hopefully, you know, hopefully we get on top of everything in the next couple of months because I, I don't know how much more uh, people comply as the weather gets warmer and as we start to see other countries, you know, really, <laughs> really coming out and enjoying it. Um, whilst we're at 30% vaccination rates at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good way to start the podcast, though, is it? Bringing everyone down. It's just the elephant in the room, though, isn't it? Like, you can't really, like, kind of ignore it or anything like that, you know, for posterity and then pretend that, uh, you know, presumably that this podcast is going to be listened to in in decades' time or something, pretend that it's not going on. So I guess it's just the the thing you have to address, no? Yeah. No, get it out of the way early as well. It comes up up inevitably in every conversation everyone has at the moment. We... um, we also discovered when we got a really high gas and an extortionately high water bill that hot water um, pipe burst under under our house and um, and uh, we're locked down so we don't really have any hot water now. Hot water. It's been going it's been going on for a couple of months and we noticed hot water was a little bit cooler than usual and the mm. tiles in the kitchen were really warm and we don't have unfloor heating so. Um, there's just been hot water flooding, flooding under there, and we can't leave the house. We can't go to someone else's place to bathe. And uh, we've had plumber, a couple of plumbers come out, and hopefully it'll be fixed. But it does explain lots of odd things that's happened in the house, including lots of these little flies everywhere. And um, it's, it's apparently like a swamp, you know, it's swampy. Under the stagnant the water, like trapped there. Yeah, yeah. Like, like we, we we began to notice water damage and a couple other things and we all put it together. Anyway, so, you know, I've got a lot to be down about, but I'm feeling okay. I well, smell. You know, I haven't had a shower um, in, in a couple of days because we can't. Um, so other than that, you know, things are fine here. Where's the end in sight for it then? Is there people working on it now? Uh, someone's coming. Um, someone's coming back tomorrow. Uh, it's it's been going for a couple of days now, but um, someone's coming back tomorrow, and we, and we've got a bath, so we're just boiling. We're going to boil water. Okay. Fill fill the bath with boiling water. So 
Um, yeah, yeah. Oh man, it's been, it's been, it hasn't been a great <laughs> it's not a lot of seven days in Melbourne. Uh, but yeah, the book, you know, got the book in the world. So you do. Should be talking about that instead of my <laughs> I was enjoying it. I was liking the tangent where it was going. Um, <laughs> look, the last guest. So JP, the second time you've been on the show, so you kind of know how it goes. The question I always like to ask starting off is, uh, where did the idea for the last guest generate from? Yeah, so um, it started with a question. Um, one single question I asked my wife. We were um, we used to have a little apartment and we um, would just put it on Airbnb. And if it <laughs> got booked, then we'd go away somewhere. So, and we had it. We we, we you know we go go to the country or we'll go to Adelaide or something. Um, Tassie, whatever. So we just so if it got books because we get pretty good money for it, we just go away and and we'd always list it for things because it was really close to the sport precinct in Melbourne. Um, we'd we'd list it for like the grand final and we'd list it for like the Formula One and the tennis and stuff and we'd get really good money and um, and that would pay for our little holiday. So so we're doing that for a while and but the very first time we did it, someone was coming to town for a wedding and. Um, and I remember they were an older couple and, and you do this thing where you check them all out. We, did, we stopped doing that after the first couple of bookings, but you just go through and you just Google their name to begin mm. with um, and just see, and it's so easy and surprisingly disconcertingly easy to find out a lot of information, including their workplace, often if they've got family because of photos and stuff on Instagram and Facebook, the political views, um, you know, everything basically. And then also, you know, after they left, sometimes you could see photos in your, in your property, which is another kind of eerie sort of thing. But um, we'd look them up and so we knew a bit about them. And um, anyway, we, we, you, you want to get good reviews to begin with. So we, and you know, the whole time you want to get good reviews, but certainly at the start, because um, it's, you don't have that critical mass, you know, mm. one bad review can really shift the needle. So you want five stars um, for the first, you know, 20 bookings or something. Um, and that was our view anyway. Like we wanted to make sure it's really good anyway. And so we were leaving out bottles of wine, welcome packs for like breakfast and milk and stuff. And because we thought it felt like we were really ripping people off, you know, we, we weren't because it was a, you know, two bedroom apartment and we looked after it and it was great. And, and we were probably charging, you know, four people could stay there. We we're probably charging 150 or 200 bucks a night or something. But um, someone stays for five nights, you get a thousand bucks. You're like, okay, well, let's make it really nice for them. So we're getting a bottle of wine and we're talking probably a 20 or $30 bottle of wine. And the idea for this novel came when I asked my wife, we came home after those guests, the first guest had stayed and, we came home and the bottle of wine was open, but only about a glass was missing. And I asked Paige, do you think we can still drink this? Um, and, and it sort of sent us both, but certainly me down a, down a, a rabbit hole of worst case scenarios, you know? Um, and it's an odd thing because, you know, if you order a glass of wine at a restaurant, mm. they've pulled that glass to someone else, yeah, of course. Clean glass and drink it, and and they'll they struck us as reasonably sophisticated types. It would be extremely unlikely, I'd suggest, that they had drunken out of the bottle. Had they drunken out of the bottle, it would be again equally unlikely they had some sort of highly contagious. You know, you, you sort of do the maths in your head, and you realise there's nothing dis- that's too harmful about it. But there's nothing harmful about eating a slug, and no one's going to do that. You know, so it's sort of the same thing. You feel dirty and and we 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 kind of acknowledge that you know we we probably shouldn't (laughs) and and i think Paige felt much stronger about that than i did but um i i began to think you know worst case scenario here they've done something to the wine maybe um maybe despite you know how conservative they appeared on their social media they were really into acid and they'd put like loads of acid in the wine or something, you know, <laughs> I thought what, what could actually happen and the alcohol would probably destroy it anyway. So I, I just thought, you know, the, the, the worst case scenario is they could have put something in the wine, mm. you know, not that they drank out of it, that they could have done something to it. Um, and again, <laughs> playing the likelihood's extremely unlikely. 
Um, but that sort of made me think, what's the worst that could happen? You know, we're, we're letting these people into our homes. We sh- that, that should be the least of our worries. If they've done something to the wine, what if they've done something to the house? Um, then we thought, well, everything's sort of insured. And then I began to think, well, I was looking around thinking, well, what if they put cameras in here, you know? And then I sort of thought, what would be their motivation? How would that work? And, and so that sort of the story was kind of born out of that first question of just asking if we could drink the wine. And I don't know if I would have written this book had we not left that wine out and come home and sort of began to think about, as I said, those worst case scenarios. Well, at least it doesn't have a, yeah, it's, I hopefully wouldn't be spiked with a lot of uh, ketamine or any sort of uh, sedative or anything like that. But um, that would be wonderful. Sorry, go. And it'll taste bad as well. You know, you know that's the, uh, the funny thing. I'm like, if something's in there, you probably, because it's quite a nice bottle, like, you would taste it. But then again, maybe not. <laughs> what about my next follow-up question to that really is, because you're mentioning about obviously being inspired about your sort of like inner city Melbourne sort of apartment there. But um, the, one of the strong things about the book is that there's the strong sense of place and it's set within Lake Tarawira. Is it? Am I pronouncing that correctly? So was that always you envisioned it as that? Why, why set it there? Um, well, there's, there's a couple of things here. You know, it's never, it's, it should be simple. And, and at first it is, but then it becomes really considered um, the setting, you know. And, and that doesn't mean it necessarily changes, but it just means I've given a lot of thought. And, um, and the setting here was... Uh, the, in very early drafts, um, my first consideration was somewhere in the States um, because I always thought, well, the creepiest stories tend to come out of the States. Um, although that's not true, you know, that's, that's definitely a bias. But, um, you know, that, that, that sort of, you know, I, I realised early that money had to be a motivating factor for lots of the characters. And I think that in the States... It's so sort of central to the self-concept of so many people in the States and they do it better than anyone that thought, oh, this would happen over there more than anywhere else. But that's the more I think about the, the less true that became. So um, it was set in the States for a bit. I, I also thought I'd set it in um, rural Victoria as a little getaway and that, that would have made research a lot easier. I had to do a few trips to New Zealand for this book. Um, but... In the end, one, I know that area, Lake Tarawira, very well. Um, mm. and, and I also like the idea of, and I think I did it with Cormier, exposing readers to um, pockets in New Zealand that aren't necessarily in tourist guides. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place, and it's not a secret to any Kiwis um, that it's a beautiful place. But I think tourists would, would definitely um, bypass it, you know. So I wanted to write about it because I really like it, and I think it's a... It's a, it's a underappreciated part of the country um and and the other factor i have to acknowledge this is a factor is um my new zealand publisher uh, hashit um aotearoa hashit new zealand so they were, were screaming out for a book to be set in new zealand so um <clears throat> and i thought it kills a lot of birds and it's one small change one stone so um yeah, it, it, the only the only thing with it was, I was still writing this and researching this when COVID happened. I couldn't get back to New Zealand um, for the last. You know, I started this a couple of years ago. It took a long time to write, actually. But um, you know, the, through, certainly through the editing process, there's little things I would have loved to have gone and done and 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 um, researched a bit more over there. But I, I just couldn't get back. So it did present its challenges in that regard. But it is, as you said, I think. Um, in all my books, the location is um, pretty important, but also I tend to try to write about places that I really love. I mean, it's a beautiful place. I got that. I haven't been there. My mum's from Dunedin, so central Otago, so I've been kind of to South Island, very rarely the north. I think I, was, I went to the north when I was above uh, very young, but not, not repeatedly or anything like that. But certainly, even though in light of the sort of... Uh, more kind of dark events within the book. It certainly made me want to go there. You kind of touched mm. on a little bit, JP, with the the house, and you mentioned something that also kind of intrigued me well as well, which is sort of like the duality of the mindset of someone that puts their home up like this. And I want you to kind of uh, talk about this theme of you 
we're kind of increasingly distrusting society where we don't really kind of take anyone for their word, but yet you're willing to kind of put your home up or welcome strangers, complete strangers into your house. And as long as you don't have cameras in there, you don't really know what they're doing, have any way of tracking what they're doing in your house. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because there was this duality that I sort of picked up and I, I suspect is kind of what intrigued you in the first place is something that you wanted to explore, which is this sort of uh, mindset that homeowners have. Yeah, it's um, no, it's a good point. I, I think, I think we, when you participate in uh, what we call society, um, you you relinquish certain things, right? I mean, this is no secret. I think when you when you agree to be a member and part of society, you you have to follow the law. You know, there's stuff like this. It's just a a contract you form with the world outside and um and you can't really escape that you know you could i guess you could try to buy an island or move somewhere lawless or live on a boat or something in the middle of the sea but um you can't you can't really avoid it and so you have to even when you walk down the street you have to assume the person walking towards you is also adhering to this contract and if they're not um you, you have to hope that they're not a psychopath. You know, you have to hope they're not carrying a knife. So this, this, these are things that you, we don't think about and take for granted every day, you know. And it's the same kind of thing on, on this. I think the internet is an extension of this. But people, um, the, the, the risk is that when someone's walking down the street, um, you can see them, they can see you, and other people can see you both. And um, there's no anonymity. If someone's walking down the street in a ski mask, they're still giving up something themselves, you know, their height and shape and whatever, and where they are. Whereas with the internet, you can, you can be pretty anonymous. And so you are that pirate possibly out in the middle of the sea um, who doesn't want to live by anyone else's rules and, and who's prepared to kind of do whatever they want. And, um, and I think that is a real risk with lots of things lots of people get scammed you know that that happens all the time people lose out on money i had a friend who thought she was moving to an apartment in melbourne city and she paid a deposit to a london bank account for it and um and turned up and it wasn't it was like i think it was like the state library this was years ago oh, right. it was it was something that you could have probably figured out on google mm. and she and she arrived in Melbourne and went to go to her new apartment. <clears throat> She'd paid a m- month's rent and lost all this money. Um, and, you know, so she was scammed and, and she still has no idea who or where or why. Um, she just knows it went to a London bank account and didn't get that money back or the, a British bank account, I should say. Um, so, you know, I think when you open your home up to people, um, you can't, we, we, we're all conditioned to, you know, assume that everyone's playing by the same rules and existing in the same sort of world we exist in, but that's that's definitely not the case. Um, it was for us. Airbnb has um, recently in New Zealand there was a party and a, and a young kid was stabbed, and that was in an Airbnb, and the and the host had no idea who was staying. Right. So so I mean, more often than not, when this sort of stuff happens, as in when there's issues with um, false identities being used to book Airbnbs and that sort of thing. Um, it's usually it's usually just kids having parties. It's happened in Melbourne. I remember a few years ago, property got absolutely wrecked. <clears throat> and so we are pretty careful, and we were pretty careful when we were renting it out. But but still, there were people who probably who lied. I mean, lots of people would just say because you get charged extra if four people are staying. So lots of people would say it's two people staying, mm-hmm. and clearly both beds had been used and it was supposed to be a couple and stuff like that. So, you know, people are, people are lying to some extent quite often online. And that's the other thing I think when you take things on online as opposed to in person, <clears throat> with that one step removed, people are much more comfortable lying, you know? Um, yeah. So, so I just think, I know this is a long rambling answer, but I just uh, view that this online space presents risks that we um, aren't really equipped to deal with, you know, intellectually. We don't, we don't necessarily think of everything that could be going wrong in these situations. It's interesting that you mentioned the anonymity of the internet 
and how it, it yeah sort of uh, is conducive to or it enables sort of uh, people to get up to all sorts of nefarious activities. What I also saw kind of exemplified within sort of um, Kane Weiner at least at one point was this also sort of normalized behavior, which you yourself mentioned that you that you did, and I think we're all kind of guilty of here and there, which is getting on the stalk and yeah, looking at the social media feeds of of various people. Um, you know, obviously within this sort of example, like an Airbnb or. This fixed, I'm, I'm assuming something fictional or fictionalized we stay. Uh, yep. It's kind of very normalized for good, I'll use the air, air quotes, good people to also kind of engage in this sort of behavior as well. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, JP, if you can, because I feel that that was something else that was a major theme throughout this sort of uh, kind of obviously has the worst sort of results that you possibly can get. But yeah, this sort of uh, normalized behavior that we now find and kind of uh, people are sort of prone to it that otherwise aren't necessarily bad people on the internet. Yeah, yeah, no. So this um, this ha- does happen all all the time, of course. I th- I think, and I've spoken about this a bit. I'm I'm quite interested in um, the point at which we call something voyeurism. Mm. You know, the point at which, and and that you know, you'll be surprised, or probably not surprised, to know that that's pretty. It's not fixed because people. You know, if you get someone to define voyeurism, then they do. And then you get them to tell you about their sort of habits online um, <laughs> and then get them to define voyeurism again. Their definitions change because they're quickly realizing that they, in fact, are to some extent, you know, engaging in voyeurism. All of a sudden they'll say, you know, <laughs> instead of it being, oh, voyeurism's, you know, just having habitually viewing private moments of someone's life or, or whatever, you know. And then you say, well, what about when you do this? And then they'll say, well, you know, voyeurism, it has to be illegal or, you know, it has to be in their home or they have to not know you're looking and and these sorts of things. So so then all of a sudden they qualified a bit further because what we do online is is cyber voyeurism. You know, in my view, it's no different to to classic, you know, voyeurism. I think the the thing that makes it – a, that kind of mitigates that kind of guilt of viewing someone else's life is that usually it's put out there by this person. Um, of course, you know it, it's it's conscious the, the sharing of this um, of this life, this, this this world. So that's that's probably the biggest difference here. But in saying that, you know, um, my you know so someone I went to primary school with is putting something up and there's probably zero expectation that I'm looking at it. You know what I mean? So that's, that's also a consideration is, but people put stuff out and they aren't really necessarily aware of the, um, the range or the availability of these images or this information. Um, and, and, you know, no one reads the terms and conditions. So it, I, I wouldn't say people are, are particularly aware of the fact that almost anyone can be looking at all of this information, all these photos and videos and so on and so forth. It's the same thing with, you know, Snapchat, stuff like that. <clears throat> you know, people could be recording it and sharing it outside of the circle that they've shared it to. And if you view that, are you a voyeur? Because you have, don't have permission to view it. And, and, and so there's all these grey areas as well. Um, but it is, I think, a pretty kind of troubling, um, it's almost an indictment of... of the kind of modern world is how little we, 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 how little value we place on our privacy. Um, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, the, the, how well the algorithms and consequently the owners of the algorithms know, know us. And, and we, we're just completely unequipped to deal with, um, the level of sophistication uh, that goes into building out addictive tech and making us share more and more and making the terms and conditions so impenetrable at, at a legal level, you know, unless you're a lawyer, you don't really understand what you're giving up. And I, I always find it troubling when people say, well, I don't have anything to hide as a defense for this. You know, if you don't have anything to hide, you've got nothing to worry about the fact that, you know, time and time again, government, agencies have been shown to be spying on you (laughs) like how is that not troubling for you you are not equipped you know cognitively to um 
to counter the, the level of sophistication in the material that's being advertised to you, how exact it is, what time they're doing it, how much these companies are getting paid to sell um, this you know, psychological advantage to, to advertisers and companies. So there's just so much there that I've felt angry about for so long that kind of came into the book and it's, it's not a polemic. It's not a um, overtly political book. It's, it's entertainment, but it is just always so frustrating, but also fascinating how we, um, we navigate this modern technological world where, as I said, we've given up all of our privacy. It's so interesting that you're talking about like this sort of uh, foregoing of all privacy kind of and how it's done like that. And I kind of feel that that also sort of applies to the way in which um, I guess the ease in which it's, it's become to be a voyeur. So back in the day, parents time, you know, voyeurs were were kind of uh, kind of i feel like in many ways society still has this sort of antiquated view of what a voyeur is is this kind of like creepy dude rocking a rocking a trench coat that goes around late at night peeping into people's windows and stuff like that stealing underwear and yeah. i feel that because that was that was such a you know like a there's this sort of archetype of that and it was such a contrived thing that you had to do you had to go around and prowl and look into people's windows and stuff whereas now because the technology and kind of what you're saying with the privacy giving that up it's also become so increasingly easy to be a voyeur that there's there's almost no sort of need of like recognition of what you're doing it just sort of it's the technology is so far advanced now that it's so easy to slip into that before you realize that you are kind of uh, even doing this without perhaps uh kind of like setting out to do so yeah, and, and I wonder if people ever <clears throat> stop to think what drives this impulse. Because mm. um, it's, it's a social impulse, I think, as well. Like, it's totally, totally natural to be interested in the lives of others. Um, but the more private those lives and the more, more private those moments, the more I wonder, you know, if we're really understanding what it is that's attracting us to it. It's like when you slow down when you pass a car accident or something like that. Um, we are so... Um, we're so starved of anything earnest or genuinely emotional that we kind of have to manufacture it in our, in our social media and then hope that we sell it well enough, you know, that, that people believe that this is a genuine moment. And I, I, I think about, uh, I think it was Chrissy Teigen. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his surname, probably. Anyway, <clears throat> Chrissy Teigen um, had, a, had a miscarriage and, when she was still at the hospital, <clears throat> this was immediately after, um, posted this devastating photo of, of her just breaking down. Um, and, it, and just something was so, so uncomfortable for me in that so many people were viewing this, so many people were getting something out of it. And I just thought, I, I can't even imagine that level of devastation having a single thought about the world outside and, and sharing it with anyone else. But that's the exact sort of content that people want, you know, mm. that they, they, they want these kind of these hugely emotionally, um, I don't want to say manipulative because I don't want to downplay the, the significance of that moment, but <clears throat> these enormously, you know, highly heightened states of emotional vulnerability in whoever we're viewing and they want to see it. They want to experience it. And, um, <clears throat> and I've just find that, and, and that's, you know, that's only one part of it. I also think a big part of voyeurism is viewing people doing completely human everyday things like picking their nose or, you know, <laughs> or just reading a book on the couch. I think people want to also see this sort of stuff. Um, but the more earnest and the more kind of, authentic it is the more we want to see that um and and you talk about like the peeping tom trope <clears throat> um and i think we've come to accept the level of, of voyeurism you know obviously we have we've come to accept that this is okay and this isn't um and the thing with that is you know there's there's nothing wrong with peeping tom if if no one knows that they're looking and that they're never caught of course, you know, what I don't know doesn't hurt me. Um, and that's the, also the power of the internet. You don't really know who's viewing it. So if you privately share someone in, something in an email even to 10 people, they're, they're not, you know, that, that could end up anywhere. Anyone could view that. 
Um, and the law is so far behind on this that you have very little protections against people sharing stuff you've shared with them. Um, this was certainly the case in, you know, recently in New Zealand, for instance, a guy who wanted to be a politician and, and damn near was a politician. He, he lost a pretty safe um, seat, actually. But um, he's, I actually knew him because he was in my hall of residency at university. But he, um, he was a woman he had dated. He was using photographs, private often nude photographs that they'd sent to him. He was using these images to catfish guys online and was getting those guys to send him nudes um, and, and, and having really intimate conversations. And so he was pretending to be his exes on, online and he didn't get punished at all, other than you know the fact that literally everyone in the whole country hates his guts and thinks he's a worthless piece of crap. Other than that, you know, there was no no legal avenue to punish the guy because the, the law is so far behind it. So now they, I, th I think it's gone through, but they were pushing through laws to kind of prevent that. But in, in most countries, you know, there's, the law really struggles to keep up um, with, with tech and privacy. And in the States, you know, the, the tech companies are, are too big to fail. They're like the banks now and they're just... Um, you know, no one wants to piss off Facebook and it's just become this kind of hideous thing where no one's really got control over what happens with the data anymore or, you know, even if you try to change the laws, it's so hard and so slow moving that by the time you do, something else is presenting itself as, a, as an issue. So, yeah, I don't know if it answers your, your question, but there is really a lot to unpack. There is really a lot to unpack and it's just that story that you just told man is absolutely wild because like you can only possibly speculate and probably never kind of uh, ever hazard a guess as to really what the motivations were for that. But it's another thing that kind of, I guess, dovetails a little bit, JP, with talking about how people justify their own. So we've talked a little bit about the various types of, of voyeurs going from the peeping Tom boy up to the, to the more contemporary sort of uh, pervasive one now or the different types. When do you think justification comes into and how is it that we look at it? Because there was one line that was in one of the Peep Chan message boards and I thought it actually kind of really served as well. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the, the inciting incident of it, but this person talks at one point about how they just came to watch people, not to see, I think they liken it to a horror movie or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. Thought, that was really interesting. I want you to talk a little bit about this and how people perceive themselves if uh, they're varying shades of voyeurism and how they then justify it depending upon what their proclivities are. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I'm glad you pointed that out. So, um, so I, I think I'll begin by saying that there's... Um, we... I think you lose your innocence and it never comes back. And this is, this is a really central theme in the book. Um, and, when, and when you see certain content, it takes... I, I say content, this could happen in real life in front of you. It doesn't necessarily need to be a, um, an image or a video online. I think when you expose yourself to certain traumas, your brain, and this is, there's countless studies showing this, but your brain um, reconfigures or, re, or sort of adjusts the level at which is required to traumatize you again, right? So you so you can disassociate, which is one thing, but you can also um, there's this sort of numbing, desensitizing thing that happens. So if you, and that's your innocence being lost, right? So if you see someone um, kill another person, um, the first time it happens is going to affect you a lot more than the second time, the third time, and then suddenly you're desensitized, and it takes something really horrible and then when that happens that readjusts that level again and that never comes back yeah yes yeah, so it's sort of like a threshold and so i wanted you know there is a moment where a, a particularly kind of violent sort of thing is happening and um and just observers who are, who are voyeurs want to show that voyeurism isn't um it, it, it's a scale but people get certain things out of different elements of it and I think if you it's like people who are pretty good with horror movies and people who aren't if you watch enough horror movies it's just no longer shocking at all and and there's so much horrible content online and I've always you know going back to my teenage years I've 
always avoided as much as possible um, viewing anything that could be psychologically traumatic, you know, um, that could, could cause this kind of, it's almost like a callus forming in, the, in that kind of empathetic part of your brain. You should always be shocked by violence. You know, you should always be shocked by it. You should always feel sick when you see someone being hurt or bullied, or you should always feel these things. You shouldn't ever lose that empathy or be, become numb to violence and numb to uh, things of a sexual nature and numb to whatever, you know? And so there's this exchange where, as you pointed out, one person just wants to view people going about the everyday life, which to me is that kind of harmless voyeurism that we come to associate with peeping toms. And there's always this thing with peeping toms that it's a sexual kind of thing, you know. Um, that may be the case with lots of people, but of the voyeurs I read about and kind of studied and researched for this book, it, it wasn't always the case. I'd say it, it was almost never the case that it was a purely sexual kind of thing where they wanted to see people doing sexual things and, and, and get off themselves. You know, that that was almost never the motivation when you read about people and you read interviews that boys have given and so on and genuine voyeurs too you know like as in when i say genuine i mean um i mean uh, boys who are doing it in real life you know who've, who've drilled holes and, and walls to view people and and that um not 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 necessarily online so uh yeah so it's sort of this thing where um this this one person is there to see pretty shocking, horrible content who is so numbed to the world that their, their form of voyeurism is to see people at their most depraved or, and it's, and it could be anything, you know, this, this character who's less than a side character, you know, this character who exists only in the online kind of communication on this platform for one page. Um, in my view, that character is someone who wants to see carnage, who wants to see, as I said, that heightened emotional state, that really shocking moment. And the other voyeur is a, what I view as a classic voyeur who, who, who simply wants to observe people going about their lives. And it's a, it's a matter of curiosity for him, much more than anything else. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because, as I said, that's another thing I, I kind of... It's probably you know, the central theme of the book is, is a loss of innocence and, um, and the way the brain changes. I did see that. And I thought that it was, it was good that you did do that because I think that it would have um, been inauthentic or it wouldn't have been an accurate representation of these sort of boards. And mind you, I mean, like some of those, some of those, um, like a channel, you know, when you get real deep, I mean, there's just, yeah, the absolute limits of human depravity, like you kind of touched on there. But, um, I feel that if everyone was encouraging and outdoing each other, and which isn't to say that these aren't these sort of boards don't exist where you wouldn't find that sort of paper type fight. I just think that having this person that was completely uh, against that and uh, seemingly, like you said, more innocuous in terms of just wanting to see people. I like that. I thought that that gave a good balance and kind of made it overall like a much more authentic sort of portrayal of what you probably encounter there. And, and also, I mean, just to touch on that, the, the fear also for, this this person um, is that this what's happening on the stream will, will shut down the platform as well. So so he's quite pragmatic about it. He's like, I didn't come to see this. I came to see people. You know, this is what we were promised with people: just to view people, and they don't know they're being viewed, not to interfere with their lives. And that that's again, that is that threshold for people. You know, that's the threshold in a, in a nutshell. There, uh, they they view voyeurism as negative only in so much as it interferes to some extent with their life, you know? So you can view people as long as they don't even, they don't know they're being viewed necessarily, but it's not hurting them. Mm. Um, you're doing that, then you're not really a voyeur, you're just curious. Sort of thing. So that was, that was kind of also something I wanted to do there. I think that the way that you kind of, uh, one of the strongest points for me with the book was the way in which this people sort of, uh, I don't even know what you call it. It's not so much an app, but this sort of uh, site in which people flock to to see this. The way in which it kind of presents itself or the moderators sort of present themselves with some sort of semblance of legality and trying to do the right thing about, you know, we'll take down, we'll remove people that are doing this or that. I thought that that was also really, really well because it did give this sort of semblance of, of it being seemingly a legitimate operation or they want to give the perspective to users that they are sort of uh, this legitimate operation when really, I mean, 
in some respects, they could easily be regarded as sort of sleaze merchants that are peddling this sort of whatever yeah. kind of goes and they kind of rub their hands together when the more depraved things happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's... Um, I mean, there's elements of the porn industry in this as well. You know, this is there. People always look at the porn industry as super sleazy and and that sort of thing. And and I'm probably in that camp. But there's also levels to it. You mm. know, there, there, there's um, there there are people making pornography who are who are so morally sound and and and, and who, are, who are so ethically kind of you know aligned with you know, what I would view as um, the right side of history or whatever you want to call it. You know, there, there are really people doing the right thing in this space. Um, and, and But whether or not, you know, it's good what they're doing in terms of society, you know, that's what some people would, would argue against. I personally wouldn't. But there is something um, there to be said about whether or not they're doing the right thing in general, but they, are, they have these ethics and morals. And then there's a full scale that goes all the way to the other end um you could go as far as sort of child exploitation material um you know there's no morals there's no ethics at all there so people can justify what they're doing in their head very easily and and to some you know uh, uh, as far as creating this content and that's the sort of people that started this they think they're not hurting anyone they don't want to hurt anyone they just want to provide a service um and um it's the people who are using the service that are problematic. If anything, they're just doing this. They're just, they've just organized it, this service that exists. So, and they can justify that in their head, but they don't want to hurt anyone. And that's where they sort of draw the line. So I think it's just one of those things as well. I kind of wanted to point to, and I, th- and I think it makes it more realistic if they aren't bad people mm. or they don't view what they're doing as bad, you know, no villains, um, are, are, no convincing villains, are pure evil. They've all got their own systems of logic and, and that they sort of adhere to. And, and these guys are, are just the same. Um, but just going back to one, one thing you did say earlier is in terms of um, the stuff of like the dark web and what happens on there. Mm-hmm. I also, I didn't want to go too deep into that because it's so shocking and disgusting, but, um, and I know I've talked about, trauma and exposure and and how it affects your brain um but something that these guys know and something they're so savvy about the people who want to keep themselves private online on their message boards and i haven't viewed these but i have read a lot about them um they they publish the sort of images routinely throughout their message threads they publish the sort of images that would make most people um, physically sick and and we're talking about um, photos of mutilated bodies we're talking about child pornography you know that they, they, they post the stuff that's completely shocking Ho- horrible horrible things throughout their threads so if someone does so, and this is a way for them to stop people from viewing what they're talking about so it's got nothing to do with the conversation i forget what it's called they've got a name for it but this stuff's posted to keep people out, keep nosy people out of viewing what they're talking about on, on sort of political forums and stuff like that on these Chan websites, these Chan message boards. And, um, you know, the thing about that is they themselves don't realise that they've, they've viewed so much horrible shit online that they've become completely numb to it. And that's their little password or that's their, their, the way of keeping people out. They're keeping out non-psychopaths right so so when when we think about who would be involved in this stuff as much as i say you know your, your villain can't be a pure psychopath there has to be some sort of origin to why they view the world this way and act this way as much as that's the case if this stuff exists in real life and it almost certainly does it will probably be complete psychopaths running it people with zero empathy um that, that are running it so there's, there's also that. Um, as much as I wanted these guys to be real normal people um, that have set this website up, if it, is, if it does exist in real life, they're probably so far removed from reality, so devoid of empathy, um, that they probably wouldn't care what content's on and they probably wouldn't have sort of strict rules about, you know, who can join and stuff. What I, um, 
what an existence to have where you're so desensitized from, from viewing any sort of material that you can put, that you can post um, images of child exploitation or horrific murder and stuff like that. And just use that as a trap, as a, as a, as a mere tool that you're not actually uh, emotionally affected by, by seeing man, that's uh, yeah. God. I mean, I mean, it's, it's shocking, but this is how they organize online. And, mm. it, and I think it happens that even in encrypted kind of messaging and stuff that it's sort of, a war for them but you know you cut it you, you sort of it's like they are um they see themselves as voodoo dolls and when they stab themselves it hurts someone else you know and and they do that so even police and stuff who, who may be viewing this are having to you know experience you know these sort of pretty highly highly traumatic images um yeah it's it is just it makes makes me feel sick just thinking about it but that's the word online. Yeah. But look, it's such a slippery slope and I totally get what you're saying there to like distinguish the two. Cause it never felt like you were um, wanting to kind of uh, write the story revolving around like the darkest, dankest recesses of the dark web. It was more about this sort of, uh, yeah, the voyeurism. I don't want to say lighter cause obviously it's, it's still, uh, there's, you know, different shades of how sinister it can get. And obviously as we see it carried out within the, the events of the last guest, but yeah, I totally, I totally get what you mean trying to st- distinguishing the two. But talk a little bit about JP because one of the other elements I found and we've kind of touched on it a little bit and it's another main theme I thought kind of defined or some elements of the book is this sense of uh, impulse and addiction. So voyeurism seen as an addiction. So something that's so compulsive, it's kind of even harder to kick than something like drugs or I mean, to a lesser extent, some elements of the the gambling that's featured as well throughout, but mostly the voyeurism and how this sort of uh, can define us in the most negative way, sort of alter our lives and kind of convince us to do, for want of a better word, evil shit in certain circumstances. Yeah, so so, voyeur, so like, hey, I guess addiction, tech addiction and, mm. and that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's another thing I'm pretty interested in. And this just, you know, I say I'm a method writer in so much as I sort of become my characters a little bit while I'm writing. Um, and part of that's conscious, like listening to the music they listen to and wearing the same clothes sometimes, that sort of thing. Mm. But part of it's completely subconscious too. And, um, and part of it's just pure coincidence. And with this book, as I was, I'd kind of finished edits, but I was leading up, and, but I was still very much in the characters' heads. And I was sort of leading up to publication. And I went back to New Zealand a few months ago um, and I, I ran my phone over on accident with a luge cart. Uh, going down I was going luging and um, fell out of my pocket and there's a whole thing but anyway the phone's completely destroyed and that was three months ago I'd say and um, and I my I only just bought a new phone you know because my publicist is getting so um, so annoyed at me being <laughs> contactable uh, along with everyone else in my life to be fair but you know I, I I just didn't have a phone because I was so in this kind of anti-tech thing, which is which is no place to be really. You know, it's inevitable. I'm not a neo luddite in that in that regard. I do I do actively and consciously combat the addictive nature of tech with um, you know just just little rules I have for myself. Um, but addiction is you know i don't know enough about it to speak with any great authority but addiction in my view is um is one of those things where you 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 can be a born with addictive personality but you can also build up habits that become unbreakable um and 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 they are for all intents and purposes are uh, an addiction become an addiction and you know people who don't have addictive natures who aren't psychologically or um, physically predisposed to becoming addicted to anything, these people will still become addicted to their phones and social media because, as I said, we are so ill-equipped to combat it. Um, We can't outthink the the algorithm, the colours. If you had any idea how much goes into it, how much money they spend on on behavioural economists at every social media company. It's the, one of the first people on the payroll these days is, is, is a psychologist to try to make their stuff more addictive. Maybe not one of the first people, but certainly the, the, the following the advice of, of um, 
of you know psychologists and we can't we can't compete with it and so everyone is addicted and it's the, the it's the parallel thing with voyeurism you know? everyone to some extent is a voyeur we're all so interested in the lives of often strangers and we all have so little going on in our own lives that we have to escape anesthetize ourselves to the world by scrolling endlessly um and you know i think we all try to um, contextualize it in a, in, a, in a way that makes us feel better about it um but it ticks every single box of addiction and tech addiction is growing and growing and growing and children today are growing up completely helpless mm. to tech addiction and I think the other thing with it is people tend not to see it as problematic, um, which is so hopelessly naive, I think, you know, to think it's not problematic when it's causing you often sleeplessness, moodiness, um, you, you are becoming removed from reality. You, you, you exist, your reality exists only within this little black screen. Um, you know, so, I think the, the other thing is with addiction, um, it's, it's, it's healthy to be addicted to oxygen you know, or, or air, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, okay, I'll grant you that. But other than, other than that, there's no such thing as a healthy addiction. Mm. Um, even addiction to exercise, that's un, that, that, of course, that's problematic, you know. Um, and it's control. If you, don't, if you no longer have control of it, um, and, and there, there's this thing where you can, there's tests and questionnaires you can take that'll, break this, this um, spell you have that'll, that'll kind of show you you're addicted. There's, there's all sorts of questionnaires. You know, do you check your phone first thing in the morning and late at night? Um, do you find you're more forgetful? Um, do you find, you know, so there's, there's all these sorts of things that'll... And, and another thing is, um, if you wake in the middle of the night and you reach for your phone... Now again, I'm just sort of spitballing here now, but... If you wake in the middle of the night and you reach for your phone, the quality of your sleep when you do fall back to sleep is worse, but also the likelihood that you'll go straight back to sleep just is in free fall. Yeah, because you're, you're, enga you're engaging your brain again. Um, and everyone's done it where you've picked up your phone before bed and you go, oh, cool, going to go to sleep. Oh, quickly check Instagram. And then you go, and you're on your phone and we have these, this loop mm -hmm. and you'll go, oh, cool, check Instagram. Okay, cool. One, oh, might as well check Facebook. I'm here. Cool. And, and it's, that's another question. Is it, are you taking an action before you realize you are? You know, yeah. are, you, are you opening an app before you've thought about it? And that's what mindfulness is, right? So when you meditate and you become mindful um, or more mindful, that's what it is. You are conscious of what you are doing. If it's not conscious, then that's, a big problem, I think, you know, if, you, if you're not planning to do something and you find you're automatically doing it, that, that in my view, is a really, that's when the, the habit becomes or the, the addiction becomes really hard to break because it's like you reach for it. Um, and to break that, you know, if you're a smoker, psychologists might say, well, wear a rubber band on your wrist and pull it when you have a, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's a way to kind of, because you're trying to disassociate you, that, that behavior, you know, you're trying to break that, I feel like a cigarette, I'll go for a cigarette. I feel like a cigarette, then it becomes conscious. You're thinking, oh, I'll have to do the rubber band trick. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on addiction, but I don't, I hate to speak about something I don't know anything about, but I do know, and, I, and I've read enough statistics and studies to know that it's, it's a problem that's getting worse and worse and rising every day. And there's that famous thing, you know, all these people that are making this tech, um, they're not really, advocating for it within their own communities and families you know these people are sending their kids to schools without computers i'm not just talking about uh you know steiner or montessori or whatever these people are trying to prevent the use of technology in their homes um and you have to wonder why it's it's i don't think anyone who hears that doesn't have that thing where they're like well why the hell is someone you know creating this technology but thus they don't want to use it within their own families and pe people will say, you know, the dealer never gets high on their own stash or whatever. It's, it sort of feels like that to me, um, but it feels like they know something about it that we don't. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it's, it's definitely like a slippery slope in terms of tech addiction can then lead to 
well, they're, just, they're not so much adjacent, they're just one with the other, like sort of intrinsically bound as the, as the voyeurism is just, yeah, neglecting the rest of your life or living out the life of your life through the lives of others, through this, like what you, I think you said is a black box kind of thing. So it's, it's so true. Um, JP, I want to know a little bit about, because last time we talked, you mentioned, and I saw in the acknowledgements as well, about how the book took a lot longer to write, like 18 months or something longer than you originally envisioned. And I thought that was really interesting because I've wondered about that a little bit. Why is that? I mean, like, is old mate COVID kind of attributed to some of that or, or what happened? Um, I think it's, um, I think it's, I had, I had a baby. I should say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that that's, that's, that, that'll do it. That'll, that'll do it for sure. Um, so no, there's there's lots of things, but I'm just um, it's always taken this long, I think. Mm. Except tell me lies, uh, and the clearing came out pretty quick, to be fair, compared to the others. But um, but I just think I've always had a, a good. I've, I've been so far ahead of the previous projects um, that it's, I gave my publisher and, and readership the impression that I can write, you know, a book in a year or whatever. But, I, but really, I can't, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's such a false sort of economy I've, I've set up here or, or I've, I've, I've set myself up to fail, that's for sure. Um, because I've, I'm finding um, those first few stories I've managed to churn out were, they've been with me for one for so long, but two, I, they took longer than, than a year to write. Um, and this one took a lot longer. And COVID, for sure, lockdowns, baby. But also, I want to make the most of the concept I had, you know, that that's, that's my kind of philosophy these days with writing is um, I want to find the best story that these one, these characters, but also to this concept can, can be. And, um, and I want to, and I want to use, you know, exercise or what's the word? I, I guess I want to, um, I don't want to waste an idea now. I think that's what I think that's what it is, um, and so I had this idea about cameras and and Airbnb properties and um, and all the previous drafts. I would get to the end, all the previous versions of the story, and we're talking about huge wholesale changes, by the way. Um, but all the previous version, there were cameras and Airbnbs, but the the kind of potential of the story was much more limited because. Um, it wasn't the central focus. It wasn't the heart of the story. So, and, but, the, but the, lots of the characters were more or less the same, but I just had to find the best story. And the same things I'm writing at the moment and, you know, I have written, um, and this is no exaggeration, I'd say six or seven, possibly more times. I've gotten to 20,000 words at least. So sometimes 40, 50, 60,000 words and, and cut and, and basically cut it back to... Mm thousand and started again and every time that happens you retain something you know like it's not as i'm starting from scratch each time but it's the same thing i want to make the most of um of this concept i want to make the most of these characters and if that's not happening i'm going to i'm going to take my time and start again that's such a good way of putting it like i've not i don't think i've ever actually heard that before and i can like resonate with you on that i've been uh i've been to uh, novel I'm shopping around at the moment that was uh, it was at a hundred thousand words and I went and did a, a six month course and it just it just wasn't like when people started to ask questions about it, I just realized it just was not the story that um that I wanted to write so like you like I'd, I'd, I'd pretty much junked it and kept like the very kind of beginning premise of like five thousand words or something and then just went from there so that's such an interesting way that you've put it as well like wanting to explore and I guess not kind of rush it out or feel like this this sort of thing. It's good that you kind of come to that as well, particularly because obviously you've got a few under your belt now and more to follow. I guess it's kind of like this sort of a, I want to say light bulb moment. It's just like so trite, but like just a way. Yeah, no, it's like that though. It is like that. I think, um, I think if you write, if your first book's good, you get pretty lucky. It could be good. It could be above average. Mm. Could be mediocre. It could be bad. It could be awful. And you don't really, you don't know, you don't know. And, um, and I think in your first one or two books, that's what, that's sort of what happens. You're kind of figuring out what it's all about and you're learning to write, you're learning, you, you, you're still, it's such a steep learning curve. And then 
if you're lucky and it's okay or good, you might get a bit of a readership and then you sort of go on from there. But I think if it's, if it's really good, what can happen is you, you want to do it exactly the same again. Mm. Um, and, and the trouble is, and this didn't happen. I don't think this happened to me. I don't view Cornelia as, you know, amazing or anything. So I think I'll say from it, but I think you, it's, it's easy to stop tinkering with your approach and that's when you become predictable and formulaic. And that's why I think really great, amazing first books sometimes are followed up by a series of pretty average uh, facsimiles of that first book. Um, and sometimes not, you know, but I, th- but I do think that that can be a, an issue is if your first book does so well that you, you kind of feel like you do the same thing again and, and write in the same way. Um, and, you know, like as much as like, this may not be my best book. Um, I, f- I feel like my, I feel like it's not a bad book. And I think, you know, I, I whenever I think someone, I, I, if an author I love has written a bad book, I always, my first thought is they've rushed it. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think if you gave someone, you know, another year on something that's not good, there's a good chance that it'll be great after. And I think that's sometimes it happens, you know, the, the realities of the market are um, if there's an expectation of you to produce uh, a certain, at, at a certain clip and writers like Donna Tart, you know, I really admire because, and David Mitchell does this, I think as well, but they, they just sort of don't say when the next book's coming um, mm. and no time pressure and when it's perfect, we'll go out there. But as I said, I'm, a, I, I'm fully aware I'm a crime writer and I can't, you can't just sit on an idea forever and work it over and over and over again. So there are some time constraints, but I think Michael Robertham was the one that said to me, this is why we pushed the publication date back um, of the last guest, because it was due out last year. But I, I was talking to him after event and he's, I was telling him, it's just, I know I can make it better. It's not working. The, the potential the idea is there, but the execution, you know, and, I was, and we're talking through it. And he said, just, he goes, you can't send a book out into the world um, if you're not happy with it. You just can't do it. He goes, so you, so that's sort of, you know, coming from the master who's putting a book out a year and they seem to be each better than the last, um, that really opened my eyes up, I think. So it was almost like an epiphany. So like well put that you say that in terms of um, like don't become complacent or don't try and capitalise on your own success if, you, if you're, yeah, like you said, fortunate enough to have like a huge breakout uh, debut novel and I'm totally with that as well in terms of like always changing your process or not feeling compelled to for, for, for the sake of changing but to do stuff that I guess probably scares you a little bit and you go oh, I haven't really done that before can I do that you know and mm. you can be a crime writer but then you, you can still challenge yourself with that in terms of going oh, okay historical fiction I don't know if I can do this. This is set largely in another foreign country. I, I, stuff like that. It's always about challenging yourself, I guess, because then you start getting itchy feet if you don't do it, and then you kind of realise that yeah, you just are sort of um, carbon copying. Um, yeah, and and you don't want to go through the motions. I think that's the thing. As soon as you realise, yeah. as soon as soon as it's like it's a chore to write, you're not excited about the story, that sort of thing, and then you go and then you default to what you know. You know, mm. you go back like because that's comfortable and it's then it just becomes work. I think that's when the endeavor sort of loses its shine and, and the reader can really sense that. Um, yeah. So, so that's the, I mean, I, I am trying to write different books every time as well, as much as there's common themes, I am trying to write uh, something new and exciting for readers every time. Um, so that's the other thing is why, you know, I don't think I could ever write a series for instance. I pick up on that, man, and uh, I think that you've definitely achieved that. So it's really good that you that you have, and you're constantly challenging yourself there and endeavouring to try and do something unique each time. Um, JP, thank you so much for talking to me today on the show, man. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I particularly also enjoyed hearing what's going on at the Pomari household there with the <laughs> the hot water. I'm hoping that situation is going to be remedied pretty soon. <laughs> no, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it will be. It's been a it's been a pleasure as usual. Thanks for having me on. Bless you, mate. 
So everyone, that was JP Pomari talking to me about his latest novel, The Last Guests. Uh, naturally, in the bio description of this particular episode that you are currently listening to uh, on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this particular episode, I am going to put into that the uh, link to the the hyperlink, as it were, or the URL to Hachette, which is JP's publisher, so that you can pick up your copy of The Last Guest from them now buying it digitally there. I also wholly encourage those, whether you're in lockdown in Sydney or Melbourne or you're not, and you're listening to this wherever you're listening to this in the world, particularly if in Australia or New Zealand, pick up a copy of The Last Guest or any other books or all of your other book needs from your local Sydney and Melbourne-based book sellers, brick and mortar, particularly the brick and mortar booksellers there, bookshops, because, um, yeah, I, I, just, I, I can't encourage you enough to, to do that. We're all in this together. I'm hoping the lockdown is not going to continue to stretch out, but I do wholly encourage you to support your local booksellers and bookshops within uh, those two major cities because this, uh, this is not a good period for anyone, particularly your booksellers and bookshops. And yeah, huge thanks again to JP for appearing on the program. Make sure to pick up your, pick up your copy of The Last Guest as well as all these other novels there available with Hachette. In the interim, I also want to thank you, as always, for listening to this episode and all others. Be sure to go back and listen to the rest of them, including the one in which I spoke to uh, with JP in January about Tell Me Lies, his last novel. And yeah, while you're at it, listen to all the other ones. Give a cheeky follow to the Spotify account if you haven't already. Uh, a lot more episodes to be coming up, a lot more guests for the coming days, weeks, months. Um, just because we're in lockdown doesn't mean that ye old lockdown and smelly, pernicious uh, Rona can stop these sort of interviews. I'm gonna to continue to do them, provide you keep listening, and I'll obviously keep chip-chipping away at putting my own pen to paper in rapid succession of my own novels there. Been writing up a storm that I'm so eager for you to read one day, but in the interim, thank you, stay safe, and have a good one.